Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we bring back an old guest with some exciting new news. Charles Lavoie, who was our eighth guest almost two years ago, has recently been named the new Director of Creative Labs at WPIC, which was a great opportunity to discuss the creative landscape when doing business in China. We asked Charles for his definition of creativity and why he believes it's important to maintain a certain amount of creativity in-house versus externalizing it to KOLs and KOCs to gain a long-term edge in the market. We discuss economic factors at play as well, discussing what a KOL might charge you for the creative and attention, and how brands can do better than market average ROI on that spend. We also discuss how to manage or teach creativity and how to deliver creativity through a consistent framework. Enjoy. Where you can really get the edge, and you were making that parallel to, the, to that stock market, and trying to get an insight of K, which KOL or which content might be more interesting in the next year. So trying to make forecasts, and that's when creativity and you know, brand insights becomes an added value. And that's what you kind of need to keep in house. All the agencies and all the brands, if they're doing a, a good job at going to get the data, they can have all access to the same data. Now it's how you read that data and how you understand your consumers and going back to that idea of relationship, how you can improve the content that they're doing to better serve your brand. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Charles, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you on again. Thanks, Todd. It's great to be here again. The reason, listeners, dear listeners, is that I say welcome back again, because if you look deep back into the, into the negotiation archives, you'll see that Charles was actually our eighth guest. And now we're sitting somewhere in the low 90s. So there's been a solid... 85 episodes between the last time you were on and now. So uh, for those who may not have caught, you know, that, that first episode of, that you were on, that episode number eight, why don't you uh, bring us up to speed again? Tell us a little bit about who you are and all your dealings, all, all your interactions, all your experience and how it all plays out with China. Absolutely. So I'm Charles. I'm from Quebec, Canada. That's where I grew up until more or less university. That was my first interaction with China. I went like a lot of people. I feel like the first interaction is with a semester abroad, which I kind of got hooked. I really got interested in everything that's happening, the innovation, the culture over there. And then that four months suddenly became close to 10 years, China story. So after, do after doing that, I worked a little bit at the Canadian embassy on trade commissioner. And then I went entrepreneurship. I launched an alcohol brand in China, which I scaled for five, five six years while funding, uh, while joining a small creative agency. Uh, I was the third person on that creative agency. 
really focus on design, content production, and then brand strategy for China. And then uh, that was really an interesting ride. We grew the agency from three to 40 people, back to 20, and then to 30. And then we went from serving 80% foreign clients into China to working more and more with Chinese brands. And that was more or less the story of when we last talked. And then the last two years, obviously like everyone, COVID arrived. And then last uh, last year, I was out of China when COVID arrived. And then me and my wife got kind of locked outside of China. And then finally, finally after a few months, made our way back to Canada. During that time, I kept my involvement with key accounts and Italian wealth management fund that was expanding in China a few other Canadian clients, helping them in, in you know, China brand strategy. Also doing, taking a, a few startup, more tech branding projects here in, uh, in Quebec. And about a f- two weeks ago, I joined, uh, went on the other side to join the team at WPIC. So really thrilled about it. And uh, I'm going to be focusing back on a lot of the interesting accounts that uh, WPIC is serving to the Chinese market. Yeah, congratulations on joining WPIC. That's amazing. Tell us a little bit about what your role is going to be now with the new team. Yeah, thank you, Todd. There's a lot of work, a lot of elements which I'll be involved. My official role right now is uh, director of Creative Labs. So Creative Lab is something that uh, we're launching in the next couple of weeks with WPIC. So over the last 15 years, WPIC has grew, becoming a really well-trusted partner from everything in terms of in terms of data uh, into the Chinese market, in terms of e-commerce, very operational driven. And then last few years, there's been more and more demand from the brand partners to expand on the marketing uh, side of how they can better not just sell on Tmall, but build their brand outside of the, the, the traditional e-commerce platform. So everything from social media, management to also brand localization and local content creation. So my role is really to up the game and kind of trying to bring my input to the table and working with a lot of very, very talented Chinese creative planner, designers, copywriters to really take what the brands have in North America and Europe and adapt it the best we can to the Chinese market and maybe innovate on it. So let's jump into a quick discussion, and I want you to set up uh, more of the rest of this podcast by just how do you define creativity? I know it sounds like it's almost like a how do you how do you describe water, but <laughs> how do you define creativity? Yes, that's a very interesting concept because agencies tend to push a lot the word creativity. To to me, it's really kind of bringing past or existing concepts or inspiration together something that like two elements or more than two elements that already exist together to bring something new that said uh being creative is like in the tech world making an invention there's a lot of invention that are made that are not commercializable like that you can't commercialize so it's kind of the gap between invention and commercialization becomes innovation and there's the same challenge in creativity so obviously we can be creative as much as we can, but the big challenge is to be creative and relevant, to be creative that people care about and that actually helps the brand. And when it comes to cross-border marketing, the other kind of paradox here is that international brands want to find partners in China that are creative and can help their brand. 
But at the same time, a lot of them have the conversation. Well, this is my brand framework and I don't want you to innovate. I want you to stay within that framework. And then in that sense, okay, how can you be creative when there's that much framework? And that's really kind of the big challenge of cross-border creativity. And that's where you're kind of looking at concept of the culture and the ultimate goal is to try to convince that, okay, let's take what's existing, innovate. And I would say in cross-border brand building, you're not building a new brand. There's already so much elements existing. So that creativity, you kind of want to add on. And then the ideal like goal is, is there something that we can create and innovate that's going to inspire back the headquarter and that they're going to do something. And I've had experience in the past and that's, that's been, you know, that's, I think really, really challenging because the perception sometimes of working with agencies in China is just, it's a secondary market. They're take our brand just execute, use our uh, creative assets and then just adapt it, tweak it, but don't really innovate. Don't really be too creative. Mm. And then there's been really good case study of the innovations and the creativity that we were able to bring to China actually inspired the people in the headquarter. Oh, we should do that in our home market. And I think that's really what we want to deliver in terms of cross-border creativity if we can inspire the people back home. Mm. Well, if I remember correctly... You know, a lot of some of the early successes that you were having, even with the alcohol brands, were, I would say, attributed to being very creative, which I think as a as a new brand, you have to be, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, everybody that is in the startup world understands that resources are limited and the, the only way it's, it's just the easy economic cal- calculation. If you're trying to just compete by traditional media buying and getting the eyeball at the cost price, then you won't win because you don't have the budget. So you need to really find new angle, new ways. And I remember I had no experience in, in fashion and we, we convinced Conrad Hotel or the Hilton Hotel in Beijing to do, to do a fashion show around our, our vodka brand. And we got biggest Chinese media to come and a lot of KOL, a lot of celebrities for free just because the concept was creative. So we became the creative powerhouse of the, of the brand. And then that's when you start getting elements for free or people want to collaborate with you at a discount. And that's when you get kind of eyeball and engagement and awareness and all those sales and metrics that you use at a discount. So I think that that's a good segue into one of the more polarizing questions that I have kind of teed up that I wanted to ask you or, or talking points to talk about. Because it's a bit of a discussion around maintaining creativity in-house versus externalizing or, or outsourcing creativity to, you know, KOLs or the KOCs, you know, whether it's up to 100% up to them to be able to do what they want uh, versus how much you, you put the reins on them and try to, you know, rein in uh, where they're going and what they're doing with the, with the brand and the creativity. Is it necessary? Would you, is it, in your opinion, better to to keep it in house? And I know that part of your answer is probably going to be, well, it depends, but that's okay. You know, which is the best strategy that is necessary for brands to get a long term edge? My answer to that would become again like more of an economic answer in that sense. And 
when I say in-house, like let's say you work with a partner for the WPIC and they represent your brand in China. So for, for me in that concept, that would still be in-house. But if you're outsourcing, like if creativity, let's say it's, there's a human hour and there's a cost of creativity and more and more KOLs and KOCs understand that. And basically if you're buying, if you're paying them for their eyeball and what they can bring in terms of audience, and they will also charge you for creativity. So that said, if you're a, if you're a brand, then you pay market price and you're just externalizing. So in that sense, the return on investment of that won't really be interesting for you. And you're just paying market value. So you're just paying what you get in return. So let's say the opposite scenario that you have an element of creativity in house. That's when, as I discussed, like that's when maybe you become interesting for the KOL to work with because you can offer them some, some value, which is creativity as well as when you have that element of creativity, you can build your own channel, your own audience. So then it becomes kind of a trade-off. Okay. Like I'm going to work with you. It becomes a negotiation. Well, I have this creative, I'm, I have this creative channel, which basically people like people follow. So if I collaborate with a KOL, then they're both exchange their audience. In that sense, it is necessary at some point for brand to start owning their audience. And the way they can own their audience is, is through creativity. Some of the economic factors behind that, the KOL might charge you for the creativity plus the eyeballs, plus the attention. Therefore, brands are really just getting market value return on investment, would you say? Yeah, in that sense. So it becomes a game of either finding KOLs that are undervaluing themselves and that, you know, that becomes again a negotiation or, you know, at the same time, like making your brand exciting through creativity for people to want to collaborate with you and, you know, create traction in that sense rather than just being, okay, here's like, here's a brief and then just do whatever you want. And also the second argument to that is more and more. And I think that's discussed, you know, you see a lot of KOL videos, which might be creative, they might might bring short term, but they're just uh, they're just not on brand as we as we would use. So there's a lack of consistency, and then consistency is one of the key element to building a brand. And then they're just shooting in too many arrows, and then at the end, it's it's benefiting the KOL. It might be, benefit short term sales, but then there's always a compromise of short term sales and building long term margin and long term audience. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like there might almost be like a marketplace play or um, like just when you said where KOLs might be undervaluing themselves, you know, so then I start to think like, oh, well, maybe there's so many KOLs and, and KOCs that, you know, it's almost like a stock market and you're looking for, you know, you're looking for good stocks to buy that are that are depreciated or lower that you, that you think you, they should be and they have more value. So then those are the ones you're getting involved with. I mean, what would you recommend to brands to look for if they're looking for a KOL or a KOC and they want to get good ROI on that spend? What are you advising them to look for? What What are your recommendations on some of, I don't know if there's data, like attention data or the the kind of audience demographics that they typically have? What what are the things that you're telling them to go look for? You know, I think the the first element for me would be like, obviously you, ha- you have your brand values and your brand framework rather than 
identifying many, many KOLs and trying out. Obviously, there's that testing phase, but try to establish a relationship over the long term with kind of a key network. Relationship will allow you to have discounts over over the over the years, over the time that you're working together. The second element is it will allow them to really understand your brand, understand your product and go deeper than just kind of that one-off video. Uh, there's a, you know, as this number of KOL are growing, people like a lot of people in China have, okay, the more people I work with, the better it is because they all have different audiences and they will, you know, they will help me reach more people. But I don't think it's like, always a numbers game of reaching more people. I think it's about like a little bit building more loyalty with the right, right audiences. So I would say, you know, key relationships and then maintaining and then getting them really kind of to become some sort of a fan of, of your brand. Are there any software or platforms out there that uh, KOLs and KOCs kind of uh, exist and live where you can go and kind of, choose and they have almost like a LinkedIn profile or a, a, a CV or a resume style of, of kind of a, you know, profile or persona so that you can kind of mine through them and almost do this kind of like quick dating shopping, looking for KOLs or KLCs. You know, you, you start to see a lot of these things coming up depending on what you want. I know that there are influencer platforms out there where brands can get connected to and reach micro influencers and things like Cameo and some of these other sites. Is there stuff that exists like that, especially in China, where you can go through and they all kind of list themselves and you can you can find one? Yeah, I think there are there are, there are, there are numerous plat- platforms. Uh, what is it called? Park. Well, Park Lu was one platform that was focused on beauty KOLs. Uh, they just got, yeah. got sold to uh, uh, international agency. I mean, Weibo and and WeChat. I know Weibo for sure has has its own agency where manage and rank and create data and you know help brands uh, select the right KOLs. So yeah, th- there are these tools that that work that are very quantitative. So I think it's like everything, it's a, having a good balance between the quantitative. Again, the, qu- the quantitative often is going to tell you like what's happening now and how much is that KOL, like what have they done in the past, where you can really get the edge and you were making that parallel to, the, to that stock market and trying to get an insight of okay, where, which KOL or which content might be more interesting in the next year. So looking like trying to make forecasts and that's when creativity and, you know, brand insights becomes an added value. And that's what you kind of need to keep in house because you can, you know, the data, all the agencies and all the brands, if they're doing a a good job at going to get the data, they, they can have all access to the same data. Now it's how you read that data and how you understand like your consumers and going back to that idea of relationship, how you can improve the content that they're doing to better serve your brand. Speaking of creativity, then how does one teach creativity and how do you manage that uh, lesson? So to speak, I would say like, are you approaching this from, I need to educate, teach a brand, or is this, I need to educate and teach some people within the brand and how do you, you know, just generally speaking, how do you go about that? That's a really tricky question. And there's, you know, there's always that discussion around right brain and left brain. And then there's people coming mm. from the left brain, which you need to give them more framework and, pe- and people coming from the right brain, which you try to need to teach creativity. At the end of the day, like, I think what you're looking for is what inspire creativity is 
it comes come it can comes from anywhere like traveling going outdoors having conversation just reading things online and then when you're it, it can definitely be taught i think it's more about like a process of connecting so how how to manage and teach creativity i think it's really about creating good team units so more and more creative agencies and i think china is still a little bit behind but we're we're instoring that at wpic is you know designers were working in a box and uh, creative planner were working in a box and the media planner and and another box and the copywriters in another box and then kind of like taking elements of that brand and trying to give their inputs and people with different person, personality might not have come together so now like this idea of creative labs is really to create kind of strong units and trying to get a few people that are more left left brain people a few people that are more right right brain people from different style and then to just kind of like give them a whiteboard and get them to understand the brand and then creativity will comes out of that mix and match so that's very contrary to a lot of a way maybe a lot of I would say traditional Chinese businesses or Asian business have been run in more kind of silo and even in North America. So going away from that silo mentality to that more of lab unit, like multi skills unit, basically working together. How does the strategy and approach change from the West to the East? I'm imagining there are kind of strengths and weaknesses on on both sides, but I also think that they're probably different. That the the West has different strengths and weaknesses than they do in the East. So, how do you ad- adopt or change? And can you kind of point out to some glaring differences between if you were to do the same thing with a Western company or brand uh, versus the one in the East? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's already been mentioned on on the podcast, and there's this like I think anyone who's been working long enough in both world of the creative agency can tell you. China is way stronger in everything that's tactical and the West is stronger usually in everything that's strategic. So the way it means is like conversation in China with Chinese brands or Chinese marketing specialists will often talk, talk start by the platform selection, uh, the channel selection, the type of format we're going to use. And then after that, we're like, okay, this is a channel. Let's come up with an idea that would fit within that channel, which is for a lot of like Western brand leaders is a little bit counterintuitive. That has, that has benefits in the sense that see how much innovation there's, there's been in, in channel marketing channels in China versus the West. That's, that's incredible. And I think it's a little bit interrelated in terms of like people are, are looking more at the problems and solution factors with, with existing channels. When I talk about channels like social media, e-commerce platforms, while in the West, you know, there's been maybe more innovation in terms of pure brand strategy and brand messaging and, and saying, okay, we're going to go in that green segment. We're going to go in that ethical statement. We're going to go in those like more strategic kind of like uh, diversity elements and stuff like that are more, more strategist topic. And then the channels are, are just more traditional, you know, TV is still big here. And then there's like Facebook, Instagram, Google but there hasn't been much channel innovation. So it's very, that contrast between uh, strategic talk uh, and then go to tactical versus tactical and go to strategic. And I think you need to take a little bit of both to really make the best campaigns possible. How far can you really push the envelope on being creative? And actually in, in which end, I mean, can you, 
push the envelope of creativity more in America or maybe Europe or, you know, in Asia? How well received is getting a little crazy? Depends how you take that word crazy. I think that the limits are different. <laughs> I think yeah, the cultural true. sensitivity are much higher in North America and in Europe in the sense that like you really got to be careful about where you go and people people are going to call you out. And if you try to be funny, you know, you have to be consistently funny and then it needs to be done the right way. While in China, it's obviously like more the political framework. But as soon as you're under the right radar, I think people are really welcoming of just brands that try left, right and center and then come back and then just are a little bit less consistent over, over the style. And then they're, they just find this. And I don't know if I would call this creativity, but like they can be definitely more go into more direction. And then we've seen it in, in really crazy or creative brand partnerships. And I think that was also on one of your other podcasts where like ice cream brands have partnered with, you know, fashion brands and car brands have partnered with industries that you would you wouldn't really think about in the west or you, like people would wouldn't dare to even imagine going there just because i think the brand manager are a little bit less flexible in north america and europe yeah and i remember you know thinking back to chloe gonsalves uh episode just talking about makeup and the cosmetics industry and i think one of the leading kols for women's cosmetics is a male and he tries on all the makeup and does all the time and things like that. And I wonder, I keep thinking, um, you know, if that, if that was in America, I, I wonder how well that would go over. You know, I, I, I don't know if they're as accepting in, in some realms, but then, you know, are much more accepting in others. So it's really interesting, but I think it, it really kind of draws back to kind of a, a, a bit of a <laughs> KYA, like a know your audience. Uh, mm -hmm. and know the landscape that you're getting into. I want to talk a little bit also about brand consistency. Okay, so delivering creativity through, you know, a consistent framework. How do you help brands do that? I think that's tied to the, the questions and the discussion we were having before. And one, one thing that struck me when I came back to North America, I, I've seen so many brand people talk about brands must be authentic. And this authenticity is really strong buzzword right now in, in the marketing world. From my, from my perspective, we love a lot of brands that are not authentic, I would say. Let's say the Red Bull give you wings campaign. And that's just been like, extremely consistent into a hyper fantasy world and Red Bull, like there's nothing really authentic about the brand of Red Bull. They've just been consistent at creating that universe and people start believing it and people now consider them as authentic. Same thing with like Kylie Cosmetic, I would say. It's not really about authenticity. It's just really consistent with the same key visuals and over and over repeating the same message that people like. And that's, you know, so I think that the key brand is not to be like authentic, not to be necessarily connected to real down to earth topic is really like, you can be either go into fantasy world and create your own universe. And I think a lot of Chinese brands are really good at, at this and, but they're just very consistent and into their fantasy world. How influential to your work or the decisions that brands might make around creativity how influential is maybe a bad word, but how important or how relevant is 
the sheer amount of competition in China and just how noisy it is, how many other brands are there competing both locally and foreign, how important is that um, when you're starting to take into account in, in guiding a brand through a creativity process? Extremely important. The first step of the process that we establish for brand coming to China is brand focus. Focus in terms of audience and focus in terms of message. So a lot of brands you know, that now are ready to go to China have been building their brands in North America and Europe for 5, 10, 100 years. And then now they have a long list of brand assets. They have a long list of product assets. And then they just go into China with all these assets and try to communicate the same way. And then basically what we try to do is, okay, remember a hundred years ago when you started your, your brand, you probably started with, you know, one product and one clear brand value and then just kind of went into that focus. Let's kind of try to do that for the new market, obviously with the resources that you have now and maybe not going all the way extreme to the only one product, but having that focus. So selecting that brand asset and that target audience to start somewhere establish a conversation, get people to know you for that, and then kind of introduce introduce other products and introduce other brand assets. So I think that's really a, a key to success in a crowded market is to have an extremely sharp focus. Okay. Open-ended question to finish this off. Any last pieces of advice or thoughts to consider for brands and for our audience uh, when thinking about their creativity you know, whether it's in advertising or package design, as they're looking across the pond to go towards Asia? I I want to say be open-minded. I just feel like that's, that's a little bit cheesy mm. in the sense, but it's more like try to give a framework, but not like don't give a, a word and a color and an image and be like, this has to be it. Just give, as we use in the world, like a creative direction and try to work with quality local people and give them some sort of you know, an elastic to be able to play within. So set the rules, but don't set them too tight. And maybe instead of taking the lead in the conversation, just ask questions, provide the, provide the right resources. And then, you know, uh, let people, you know, if you, if you try to take too much part of the conversation, like the innovation, the creativity will kind of be suffocating on the other side. So let that creativity, and then it's better to say no than, you know, not receive any additional inputs. Charles, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was really, really great to have you back again on the show and congratulations on the new role. Thank you so much, Dad. And I'm looking forward to listening to many more podcasts. I hope I didn't repeat myself too much. It was a pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.